gods and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. come to this feast of the baptism of the Lord, and as I've been preparing to give some reflection about this particular feast, I'm coming at it a bit differently. We've got three children being baptized, and I have the distinct honor of having been asked to be godfather to two of them. <laughs> so I'm very pleased. I'll get a step out of Christmas for a minute and jump into Godfather to but as I've been thinking about this, there's a moment in the baptismal service where those who are parents and sponsors presenting these children for baptism answer some questions that not everyone answers. So I, I haven't really been thinking about these questions in the same way at previous baptisms. Of course, in the church, we, we do weird things and we use weird language, but perhaps none quite so weird as in the baptismal liturgy, when we make the renunciations. So we renounce Satan and all the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God. We renounce the evil powers of this world which corrupt and destroy the creatures of God. And we renounce all sinful desires that draw us from the love of God. Ooh, that's strong language, isn't it? First off, language like renouncing, that's not really your everyday talk. Renouncing, to refuse to follow, obey, or recognize any further, to repudiate, we renounce these spiritual powers of wickedness. And really, this talk of Satan and spiritual powers and evil, for some modern Western folk, maybe it seems a bit old fashioned. But I think there's some real wisdom, some real spiritual genius in this threefold renunciation in the baptismal rite. It names evil in a simple but comprehensive way. And we can't look at the news without saying, oh yeah, there's evil in the world. But there's evil on a spiritual level, this evil that wars against God. Sort of evil that's going on even without reference to us. This is something that's going on in the heavenly realms, as it were. Something that's just out there. There's evil that's happening on a social and systemic level. The evil that seeks to destroy God's good creation. The degradation of the earth. The inhumanity of war. And there's the evil that creeps into each one of us. Let's be honest, we know it does. We know it does. This evil that creeps into us, drawing us away from receiving and returning God's love. This comes in many forms, many temptations, all of which usually involve some sort of disordered attachment, some disordered affection. What I appreciate about this threefold renunciation is that it contextualizes that third evil, the one that has to do with me personally. It puts it into a bigger context. It's not just about me and my own sinful desires, but it's it's contextualized in this big cosmic thing that's going on and in this systemic, social, structural thing that's going on. So some of us might have grown up with a spiritual teaching that's fixated on sin management, where the gospel is all about Jesus died for you to take away your sins so God forgives you so you can live with God in heaven forever. 
And your job on earth is just to try and not sin so darn much. And I understand why this view gets preached. It's easy. It's really easy to preach. It's much easier than preaching this cosmic battle between the forces of good and evil. It's much easier to preach moralism than morality. Just be a good person, do good things. That's easier to talk about. But the truth is, my sin, my moral failure, my disordered loves, is formed in an imperfect social context. What I'm saying is, we all come by it honestly, don't we? In the Christian tradition, we sometimes call this original sin. The idea that by virtue of our birth into this broken human social system, we bear the marks of that brokenness, namely sin. This goes back to the beginning of the biblical story. Now, it's still quite early in the new year. Anyone made the resolution this year or in years past to read through the whole Bible cover to cover in one year? If you've done it, you probably, like me, got stuck somewhere in the second half of Exodus <laughs> with the deep, deep description of every element of the tabernacle the Israelites were supposed to build. Not only the plan, but the execution in excruciating detail. Anyways, I digress. If you made it that far, you know the story begins with two different creation stories. Now, the Bible, especially the Old Testament, was written over hundreds of years, bringing in all kinds of different writing and different traditions, some of which line up, some of which disagree a little bit, and it makes for this really rich tapestry. Well, this morning we read one of those, or part of one of those creation stories, Genesis 1. But this, the creation story that really forms our imagination around this original sin stuff is Genesis 2, the second creation story, where you have Adam and Eve in the garden. You know what? There's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They're not supposed to eat the fruit from it. What happens whenever there's a tree you're not supposed to eat the fruit from? They eat the fruit. And you know the rest, right? You know the rest. They, they discovered for the first time that they were naked and that they felt shame about that. They didn't felt that before. They suddenly had trouble working the land. It used to be this wonderful garden that produced everything they needed. Now it's hard work. They used to get on well. And things were difficult. And then if you keep reading on in Genesis, the whole story is of Adam and Eve's children just making things worse and worse and worse. So we have this imaginary in our heads, going back to that story, but this original scene. And at, the, at its worst, the Christian tradition has made our identity so focused on that, on that sin part, that we call the fall, and we're so marked by that. But actually, the first word about us is not the sin part. The first part goes back to that first creation story in Genesis 1. When God creates the heavens and the earth, God speaks into existence, all that is. So God says, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light and called it good. And so on for six days, God creates, speaking things into existence with his powerful voice. 
and saying, it is good. It is good. And on the sixth day, when God creates people, God says, what a bunch of sinners. <laughs> no. God says, it is very good. It is very good. And so the first word God says about us is that we are good, that we are loved, that we are enough. And that's wonderful. And that is echoed in baptism. So in baptism, we're united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection, and we'll experience that in the ritual of baptism very profoundly. At Jesus' baptism, what does God say? You are my son, my beloved, and you I am well pleased. God's first word, God's last word about us is you are good, you are loved. Yeah, there's the reality of that. In the middle, there's that evil that we get caught up in, this cosmic, this social, this personal thing, but it's not what defines us. It's not the most true thing about us. So in baptism, we can claim our true identity that has been our birthright from the beginning, that we are beloved children of God. And the more we embrace this truth, the more we embrace our true identity, the more we can renounce those evil powers that rebel against God, the more we can renounce the evil powers of this world that subject one people group to another, the more we can renounce the evils of racism and sexism and classism, the more we can renounce the evils of war and the evil that makes war seem inevitable, the more we can renounce the evil that buys for our hearts to pull us away from the love of God. God gets the first word, and God gets the last word. In this we hope and put our trust, and that word is always good. Thanks be to God.